This is Books for Breakfast, a podcast where we talk about books and writing. I'm Enda Wiley. And I'm Peter Sir. And you're all very welcome to this morning's show. On today's show, new collections from Blood Axe Books by Kerry Hardy and Aoife Lyle. And we go to Hodges Figures for the launch and talk to both poets. And Blood Axe has also published Fleur Adcock's collected poems to mark her 90th birthday. And we have that very substantial book right in front of us on the table this morning. Yes, we do. And it's an absolutely beautiful book with a stunning photo, I have to say, of Fleur when she was younger. Very Mary Quant kind of 1960s feel to the cover. It's it's a beautiful collection. It's all 600 pages. Can you imagine that with poems dating from 1964 through all of her many collections and right up to new poems written this year? Yeah, I mean, she, she's a very interesting poet, I think. Uh, and she's kind of one, a poet who never raises her voice. I mean, the poems can be sharp, witty. Right, but they always have this kind of intimate conversational quality. It's almost as if you feel that you're in a room with her having a good conversation. Yeah, that's true, actually, Peter. It's funny you say that, actually, because one of the first poems I came across by Fleur Adcock was a really short poem called Send Off. And it was from a collection called The Inner Harbour, which uh, came out in 1979, and from a section called Endings. And in fact, this poem, there is a laid back kind of tone to it, conversational tone, as you were talking about earlier, but there is a very sharp ending to it. Send Off. Half an hour before my flight was called, he walked across the airport bar towards me, carrying what was left of our future together. Two drinks on a tray. So what do you think of that one, Peter? Two drinks on a tray. I love that. That's all that's, that's all that's left. Yeah, no, it's great. Yeah, it's really good. She's from New Zealand originally, isn't she? I know many people confuse her with being British sometimes, but originally, I think it's fair to say she's from New Zealand. Isn't that right, Peter? It's slightly complicated. I mean, she was born in Auckland, uh, but she spent a lot of her childhood in England and then she came back to live there in the early 1960s. And so there was a bit of back and forth between New Zealand and England and that. Um, the questions, if you like, of identity that come out of that inform um, a lot of the, the work. Mm-hmm. There's an early poem, for instance, called Immigrant, and it describes her after eight months in London and she's still feeling like an awkward colonial doing her best to fit in and doing her best to lose her New Zealand accent and that poem finishes uh, St James's Park Great accent Peter St James's Park <laughs> St James's Park you know, she's kind of trying the, the different kind of modulations that, but there's another poem actually on that same kind of theme of identity from her 1978 collection The Scenic Route and she's visiting Northern Ireland in search of her ancestors, something she does quite a lot of. And this particular poem is called um, Please Identify Yourself. And you're going to read that now for us, Peter, aren't you? I'm just going to read the first, the first little bit of it. Um, it says, Please Identify Yourself. British, more or less. Anglican of a kind. In Cookstown, I dodge the less urgent question when a friendly Ulster bus driver raises it. You're not a money more girl yourself, he asks, deadpan. I make a cowardly retrogression, slip ten years back. No, I'm from New Zealand. Are you now? Well, that's a coincidence. The priest at Moneymore is a New Zealander. And there's the second question, unspoken, unanswered. Ah, there you go. She's written a lot about her ancestors. She has a big fascination with family history. And a poem that I really like of hers is called The Russian War, which is what people called the Crimean War back in the 1850s. And if you like, Peter, I'm going to treat you to that poem by Fleur Alcock right now. Would you like that? Sure, let's hear it. The Russian War. Great, great, great uncle Francis Eggington came back from the Russian War. It was the kind of war you came back from if you were lucky. 
bad, but over. He didn't come to the front door. The lice and filth were falling off him. He slipped along the alley to the yard. Who's that out of the pump, they said. A tall tramp stripping his rags off. The soap was where it usually was. He scrubbed and splashed and scrubbed and combed his beard over the hole in his throat. Give me some clothes, he said. I'm back. God save us, Frank. It's you, they said. What happened? Were you at Scutari? And what's that hole inside your beard? Tea first, he said. I'll tell you later. And Willie's children will tell their grandchildren. I'll be a thing called oral history. I love that. I have a thing called oral history. And there's that kind of wry note I was talking about. Um, one of my own favourite sets of poems by her is the sequence that she wrote for her friend, the great poet Roy Fisher, after he died. And they're properly angry poems about death. And the first one is called Dead Poets Society. Oh, I'd love to hear a properly angry poem about death at the breakfast table. Off you go, Peter. Dead Poets Society. Yet once more, O ye laurels, and once more myrtles and such like, I come to complain, though not to you, innocent shrubs. My target is mouldy old death who keeps grabbing my friends. I have some words for you, skeleton guts. You've snatched more than your share of poets, crammed them in your long pack and carry them off to munch at leisure in your den. Why couldn't you have used some judgment? To you, we may all seem much the same, but I tell you, bone today, the life you had the gall to pluck, not untimely, he was old enough, but gifted, with wits, with wit, and a brain that these witless times can't easily spare, was exceptional. It was Roy you took. Think about that if you can for a moment. Goggle sockets and repent. Yes, Roy, dear friend and matchless poet, Roy, who has not left his peer. He and I kept a running correspondence to note each colleague who became your prey. Endless mailings had it. Another one. We were against you, as he managed to say to your face when you came fumbling for him. His last word, I'm proud to report, was fuck. Wow, I wonder is that the first time, Peter, we've ever used that expletive on, on books for breakfast. Yeah, I think it might be in the you know, scandalous, a scandalous precedent that now that we're setting. Indeed, but what a passionate poem and how sad indeed that the great poet Roy Fisher had to leave this earth. You can feel the passion there. Well, there's so many good poems in this book, aren't there, Peter? I mean, we could spend all day talking about them, but unfortunately we have to move onward. Um, but it definitely, I think, do go and check out Flora Adcock's Collected Poems, published just recently by Bloodaxe Books. And we're off now to Dawson Street, to Hodges Figgis, to be exact, for the launch of two more Blood Axe titles, Kerry Hardy's We Go On, and Aoife Lyle's The Day Before. under the rim of the sky, then the shimmer of a light spreading the face of the sea. A man walks a dog and gulls drape themselves on the unseen flow of bright air. And it feels like everything's happened already, 
and everyone's fighting to board the last plane. Though the man is still walking the dog and more gulls settle and stud the roof of an empty shed. And maybe it's always been this way, with all of us sure of our own redemption. Though it's dark out there, we'll muddle through, and it's somebody else who'll fall off the edge of the world. Carrie, your book is called We Go On. Very Beckettian title, I must go on, I can't go on, I'll, I'll go on. I'm just wondering, is that echo intentional? Absolutely. I think the times we're living in, sometimes that's the only way it feels. We go on. Mm. Can't go back. Oh, can't stay here. Can't stay here. Have to go on. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, there is that sense of the necessity of going on, of, of kind of muddling through. You, call, you say the weird belief in our own redemption, as you say, though it's dark out there, we'll still muddle through, and it's someone else who'll fall off the edge of the world. Well, you, we always have the illusion that it will be someone else. I'm, I mean, I live in the country, and I'm amazed at how many people walk around and they say, aren't we lucky to be living in Ireland with no climate change, no this, no that, no tsunamis, no wars, and it can all change like that. Yep. In fact, it already is changing. Even, I mean, the whole country's been flooded this year. Kerry, I'd just like to say well done on your book. We've both really enjoyed it, haven't we, Peter? Absolutely great. Um, a lot of your work involves observation of nature. There's a figure in a landscape noticing the fields and the sun, but there's an edginess to it often, a sense that things aren't always what they seem. And our own place in the world, it's quite precarious. Um, I have that sense in a poem like The Ground Under My Feet, which you've also chosen to read, um, along with other poems that we're going to hear um, this evening. But maybe you might lead us into that, Gary, and tell us why you wrote it and a little bit about it. Well, um, The Ground Under My Feet was not actually written with that in mind, though I do have that sense very often. And uh, um, it was more that it's no good floating off into the distance. You have to, you have to, I have to keep my ground, my feet on the ground. And also as you get older, you think, well, I always had the illusion that I would know what I was doing. That sometime would come when this wonderful thing happened and I actually understood what was next and what I should be doing and all the rest of it. And then suddenly I realized that it wasn't going to happen. And so all I could do was, this echoes the We Go On title, all I could do was keep my feet on the ground. And then I was talking to a friend of mine, Deirdre Brennan, and she was talking about, and Moya Cannon also notices this, that Western Christian art, the angels don't have feet. They have loads and loads of linen cloth around their feet. Um, so I realized that we have to grow feet and put them on the ground <laughs> and walk on them. Interestingly, Byzantine art does have feet. So, um, and I don't think they have gender to their angels. Um, I don't know if that's regressive or progressive, but we don't either. <laughs> that's a very interesting point. So you, you've got to read, it's actually the last line, isn't it, in that poem yes. that refers back to that idea yes. of the angels not having yeah. feet, isn't it? Yeah. So You don't live up there, you live down here. Okay, yeah. I hope I'm not spoiling it from the listeners now, but if you, if you want to read it first, Gary, we'd love to hear it. The ground under my feet. The morning light lies on hummocky fields, early ploughing, on the stretch of the slope, 
a new lamb rises, staggers. I need to cross over into some place where no one expects me to know what I'm doing. Some place where I'm not even trying to understand or explain why life matters and ploughing ordinary, earthy things, the need to paint feet onto angels. I also wrote that because I increasingly have the feeling that poetry is getting more and more intellectual, mm-hmm. and I want to go back to the things I live among, mm-hmm. which are the lambs and the, the muddy, the mud. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the, the lambs and the mud and the need to paint feet onto, onto <laughs> angels, I love that. Um, the need to cross over into some place where no one expects me to know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Getting off the kind of expected path or being released from the kind of expectations that that life imposes, that's that's a big part of this book too. And there's another poem a bit like this, and it's dedicated to the poet um, Sinead Morrissey. It's about a gift that you gave her. And I wonder, could you kind of lead us into that? Well, Sinead sent me her collected, I think it was, no, selected, or or a new book. I can't remember. No, it's in her collected. And... I opened it and there was this poem dedicated to me and I'd forgotten all about giving... I gave it years ago. I went to, we went to Italy and I bought her a transparent kaleidoscope. I'd never seen one before. Do you know, you know kaleidoscopes usually change the world into bright colours? Mm-hmm. Well, this one just shifted. It shifted everything it looked at. It broke it up because it was simply plain. Mm-hmm. And she was completely fascinated by it because it made everything turn and change and she said she walked around for days pointing at the kids and pointing at this and that and making them break up into prisms and and different so her poem to me was about this kaleidoscope and then I wrote this one to answer her because I Partly it was a direct answer to it, and partly it was a realisation that when you don't meet all that often, because I've been living down here for a long time and Sinead was in the north and now she's in England, you only see bits of yourself. Mm -hmm. You only throw bits of yourself at each other. In fact, we do that all the time, I think. We alter ourselves according to who we're with. I do it quite unconsciously. Some people do it consciously. I believe it's a learning skill. I don't know. Um, (laughs) But... Shall I read the poem? Yes, please. The Transparent Kaleidoscope for Sinead Morrissey. I opened your book and there was a poem, my name in the dedication. You wrote of a gift I had given you, a mirrored kaleidoscope, clear, fracturing whatever you aimed at into a myriad versions with no colours to distract. You were delighted the glamour of ordinary become a multiplicity of shape and life. I remember it now. I found it in Italy along with a pair of fine leather gloves, chrome yellow, beautiful. I never wore them, had bought them only because I wanted them badly. That was years ago. I know now that you never saw me, only reflecting versions that flung themselves at you when we met, pretending they were me. Perhaps that always happens. I fail all the time to peer down into my cleft in the rock, that shifting place where I live and must, before long, 
leave behind. Those lovely, Gary. Um, I know people these days, they communicate by email or by text, different ways, but it's wonderful, I think, to communicate by sending each other poems back and forth. It's such a nice idea. Well, for uh, years we did letters. Yeah. And then Dennis O'Driscoll said we had an Eastern European friendship because we never met until about 10 years after we'd started writing letters. <laughs> oh, that's so interesting. And then these beautiful poems coming back and forth. That was Kerry Hardy reading The Transparent Kaleidoscope from We Go On, her new collection from Blood Axe. And it's lovely to be here with Aoife Lyle, whose new book is also out, and Kerry. Um, we're sitting in Hodges Figgis, we forgot to say. We're high up over the city. We can hear the Lewis going by, the bells ringing. So I just thought it might be fitting, Kerry. We're in the kingdom of the Vikings here in Dublin, if you would read a poem called Vikings from your new collection and lead us into it, we'd love to hear. Because, I mean, your last story was so interesting as to why you wrote the poem. I'd love to hear why you wrote this poem called Vikings. Oh, this one's much simpler. Um, I live looking out over the Barrow Valley to the Blackstairs Mountains. And at this time, and I love the winter on the Carlow Kilkenny border. And at this time of the year, the, um, the crows are, the crows are amazing. They just in there's woods in uh, over the barrow and they come home in the evening and they just come home in these great rushes but uh, some people don't like crows but they're one of my favorite birds because they're so raggedy and dirty and nasty <laughs> so i'll just read this how they love the wicked side of winter. This is the crows, not the Vikings. How they love the wicked side of winter, the broken walls, the fox-torn yo, the drinking places stiffening into ice. Gleeful the rush to the killing, the jeering jab and stab, the lust for plunder. In the dusk of this winter morning, the crows are flinging defiance. Ragged and harsh, their dirty black voices complain the day that's breasting seas of slate blue mountains, shifting landscapes, snow. Oh, thank you so much, Kerry. That was a roller coaster of sound. It's wonderful to have you here and reading this evening before your launch. So thank you so much. Yeah, thanks very much, Kerry. And, and turning now to, to you, Eva. I mean, the day before your new collection that's being launched tonight here in Hodges Vegas, you've gone back to the very earliest days of the pandemic. And I'm wondering just why it was important for you to set your poems in, in that period. Um, well, it was very much a case that most of the poems that are in the book were written in those earliest days and weeks, but only as first drafts and notes. Um, like many writers, I found that I couldn't respond creatively to what was happening. Um, and very much because it was a case of when I'm thinking about poems, I'm thinking about poetry, I think about ways I can break down barriers between familiar things, uh, create unusual juxtapositions, see what happens when things come together. But we were living at a time when everything needed a barrier, everything needed to be kept separate, everything needed to be kept apart. And so my brain just kind of said, like, we're just going to leave all of that to one side. Um, so it wasn't until I was in Cove Park in July 2021 that I actually came back to these poems. And for me, it was important that they had that chance to sit because not that everything had resolved itself, it still hasn't resolved itself, but I was enough away to get a sense of what it was I wanted to communicate about what I had experienced. Um, because again, people were doing 
everybody's experience was completely different, but we were all experiencing the same thing, as it as it were. So I wanted to decide where I uh, I was going to to write on that kind of spectrum of contradiction. Sure, and you, I, you're actually going to read a poem um, for us now from that early part of the, of the book called Moss. Yeah, that's correct. Um, and again, I'll, 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 a lot of the poem speaks for itself, but just trying to bring across and to communicate in five years, ten years, twenty years what it felt like in real time and as, in as much as you can. Um, because I find if I try and write something after the fact, I'd start organising it into neat and predictable patterns. I see that the end point was inevitable and I cut out the things that don't suit my version of the story. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's why it was important to me to to, to bring this uh, into this poem. Moss. We thought it was pen at first, or paint. A dab under the chin, worked under the nails, found in the folds of elbows, the backs of knees. But no... We have started to moss. We see it everywhere. The woods, the parks, the playgrounds. Parents trying to hide it under hats and gloves. Children picking it off each other like scabs. Some compare colours, trace the lines as islands joined to islands, form their soft continents. Advice arrives on the wind like spores. Use less water. Get more sunlight. Consider introducing competitive plants. We steer clear of sulfates. Scrub added in the bath and shower. Swap our sheets for sand and gravel, but still it comes. And soon we start to see whole families covered in the stuff. They move slowly, erratic, glacial, curl up under slides and seesaws, become benchmarks and bollards, milestones and street sculptures until those in charge are forced to admit to the rest of us, all hanging by a thread. Thanks very much, Eva. That was wonderfully read. Well, as you just said earlier, the collection is set in the pandemic, but it also, it seemed to me, very much celebrates ordinary moments caught. You're in a car with your family in a poem called Traffic Calming. You're building sandcastles in a poem, A Day at the Beach. And I was just wondering, is this something that you value as a poet, the way poems can permanently, I suppose, give voice to and celebrate the ordinary experiences of everyday life? Very much so. And I think it's because when we grow up and when we experience the world through the people around us, we believe that it's very ordinary. But you go one town, one city or one street over and your life will be considered extraordinary by somebody else. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's always the strongest thing, that anything that you do will be considered extraordinary to somebody else. And I also think it's nice because when all is said and done, It's those little memories that you have that are the things, you know, you don't remember how much you spent on the holiday or how long the journey was, but you'll remember the crayon picture that one of the kids drew on the napkin or, Mm -hmm. you know, when somebody slipped on a step and spilled a drink. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what I like about poetry is that it it is those kind of small, just little significant moments that you're not sure why you remember, but they're just beautiful and you just want them to stay mm-hmm. in a way that, as I've said with the previous collection, a photograph or a text message just isn't going to cut it. Mm-hmm. Very very much um, related to that, actually. In, in your poem, Mortification of the Flesh, you talk of the, the easy penance, you call it, of, of cleaning the table or soaking the clothes or needing to pick uh, pasta off the floor, all that kind of messy chaos of of family life and and the sheer hard work of it. And that kind of inspires you too, doesn't it? 
Very much so. And I mean, in, in the frame of the collection as well, the, the pandemic, pandemic made all of those things worth paying attention to, but also because you were restricted in, in your environment, you learned to find the nuance, you learned to find the good, the subtle, the significant within all of those things, because that poem was written in particular. It was after the first time we had gotten meat in the shops mm. in about two weeks. Mm. And suddenly this thing we had done every week, every Monday we had this meal, it took on a meaning that it hadn't had before mm. and it became precious and that right. And that that's why I wanted to just stop and go, this was never extraordinary till we couldn't, till it wasn't something that we were able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I named the collection the day before as well, because it's the day before the thing that changes mm-hmm. your perception of what everything is or it changes your entire experience of living. And you'll think about those things from the day before and go, that was so ordinary mm-hmm. and I didn't even realise how precious it was to be ordinary, to be uh, in the background. Yeah, it's so true that, you know, it becomes so much more vivid, doesn't it, when you look back on the day before, in this case, the pandemic. Uh, I remember actually Peter and I cycling around the city of Dublin, coming across, do you remember on Fitzwilliam Street, a shop open, the butcher's the shop butcher. open, and we couldn't believe it, you know, that there was meat there. So, yeah, I do remember that excitement that the pandemic brought to what we would have considered up till then as ordinary things. But just listening to you talk there, Aoife, uh, I'm reminded of another poem where you talk about bits of breakfast, feral socks and stickers in the makeshift play den that you made with your child. And I really love that poem. And I'd love if you would read that for for us now. It's a poem called Torch. And I, I just want to say as well, I thought it was really interesting in your collection that there's an accompanying music score to it by Jake Morgan. Isn't that right? And if you could just explain how that collaboration came about, because I think it's it's really wonderful when artists can collaborate. Absolutely. So it was a, the collaboration was actually with his brother, Luke. Luke in the first instance and it was as complicated and romantic as a like and a follow and then Luke said that he would pull a name out of a hat and make that person a film poem. Um, So it came from there and then he subsequently got the funding for it as well so he made the film which played at the end of the online launch um, and his brother had done this score and I just actually got it for myself and then I had said to Neil could we actually put it in the book because I love the idea that you could get the sound and now I can't read sheet music mm-hmm. so for me it's incredibly interesting to go this is a musical rendition of what I've written but I can't read it mm-hmm. but I having listened to it I understand the emotion that's being conveyed mm-hmm. um, so no and they were absolutely lovely to work with and I would absolutely Luke if you're listening got plenty more uh, it'd be a lovely thing to work with them as well they're, they're just lovely and they're so they're so professional uh, but um, yeah, this is the... Sorry. sorry. No, I was just going to say, for anyone listening, that also the film is available online, isn't it? You can get it through Blood Axe, can't you? Yes. And it was really lovely, actually, at the online launch uh, recently where they they put that on, Blood Axe, Neil Astley put it on. It was, it was lovely to see it. So well done on that collaboration. Torch. A small thing with coloured discs that slip between the light and lens. It projects a host of carnivores against our doors and walls until one frame is just an eye big enough to dream. I make a trick of hiding it and leave a moon for you to swell and shrink with insatiable orbit. 
determined to explore the deepest corners of our makeshift den. You discover lost worlds behind the curtains, figures fossilised in dust, their shadows moon dark beside missing bricks and bits of breakfast, feral socks and stickers with the mass and magnitude of asteroids. And behind the couch, full of stars and covered in dust, a yellow balloon, silent now and small, knowing it was born from the dust the light is dancing for, that it too was once a star. Great, thanks Aoife. Um, This is your, your second collection, Mother or Mother Common Nature, just to make sure I get that right. Uh, your first book, which also came out from, from Blood Axe, was a tender evocation of, of motherhood and a collection rich as a newborn with promise, one reviewer said. And so many of the poems in this, in this new book are also rich with, with motherhood, such as The Back of Five, and the poem that you're now going to finish with, which is called Knuckles. Yes, so this was uh, a poem that I didn't think to write until my daughter was, uh, I was getting my daughter ready for school. And it's that very specific memory of, of my mother bunching up my tights so I could, I could get them on when I went to school. So even though I had done it for her for years before that, it was that very specific circumstance that, that brought the poem uh, in, into being. Knuckles. As accurate and imprecise as a month of ligaments, I cast my mother's knuckles in bronze Use them to bunch the legs of capricious tights and socks, to hold a halo of fabric around my daughter's feet. Stretch them to her chest, her chin. Tendons designed to test the toes of shoes, the waistbands of jeans. When in doubt, I knead them into the ruined skin of my hollow chest. Hold up the mirror. Read. Thanks very much, Aoife, and thanks too to, to Kerry. And we wish you well now with the actual um, launch in, in a few minutes here in Hodges Vegas. That's right, which we're all very much looking forward to. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. We, I think we've reached the end of our Books for Breakfast podcast this morning. I'm definitely rushing off to have more coffee. And I'm Enda Wiley and I have Peter Sarah here with me. And Peter, would you like to tell everyone about the details of the podcast if they'd like to listen again? Well, you can subscribe at all the usual sources, Google and Apple and so on. And if you want to check out the notes that go along with this podcast, you can go to booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com. And yeah, so. We'll be back again. We'll have the toast on. We'll have the kettle boiling. We will have more books to discuss. And we're looking forward to having you here. So goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.